Our first selection is from the book of Isaiah, which you will find on page 613 of your pew Bibles, 53rd chapter, the first six verses. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. New Testament reading is from the book of Romans. Fifth chapter, verses 12 through 17, on page 942 of the Pew Bibles. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for the promise that your powerful world, word will not return to you void, but that it will accomplish what you intend. We pray today for Pastor Curran and for all men who will stand before your people around the world and proclaim that word. May the knowledge of this promise help them remember that they preach your word, not theirs. Dear God, help your preachers to preach all the truth and only the truth. Free them from any human tendency to make preaching about them. Fill them with the power of your spirit that they may, that they may proclaim your things and only your things before the people. May their study be saturated in scripture and may their presentation be focused on your will. Help them never forget that they must preach the truth in love and the love in truth if they would be obedient to you. Help them faithfully to lift up your name, your word, and your gospel before those to whom they preach, and grant your people eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand and obey. In the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So now we are 
going toward uh, Resurrection Sunday. Now, Sunday by Sunday, a journey toward the resurrection, week by week. Last week, we looked at what was that? What was that word, that multisyllabic big word that everybody loves and is on everybody's lips? Depravity. Yes. If you've got children, you understand the concept. Not only in their lives, but in your own life. This is amazing how children can bring out the depravity in a parent. I never knew I could get so upset. And uh, depravity. And I like, one of the elders came up and he said, hey, I got a definition of depravity now. And I said, well, what is that? He said, uh, buying $500 worth of Girl Scout cookies with drug money. <laughs> I said, well, that, yeah, that, that, that does stand out. And we talked about being utterly depraved. In other words, uh, the disobedience that Adam and Eve uh, engaged in and that came down to us affects all of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our physical bodies. And you say, well, how do you know everybody's a sinner? Because the wages of sin is death. Everybody dies. So then everybody must be a sinner. And we inherit that. But it isn't just that we inherit it. We choose it. Uh, it's our choice to rebel and, dis, uh, and disobey God and go our own independent way. And so we're guilty by inheritance and then we're guilty by acts of omission and commission. But now we move into, well, what has God done to respond to that? Because he was not obligated to do anything. He could just say, well, this first experiment with Adam and Eve did not go well. They're gone. Let's start over. But he didn't, because he had a plan to bring glory to himself, to demonstrate his amazing mercy and grace. And in, uh, depravity is the beginning of the story. Well, how does the process work? We're using a word called imputation. And that comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 12. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I've given you an outline there, your ledger in heaven, Christ's ledger of sin, and our ledger of righteousness. By the way, did you know that each one of you, all of us, each one of us, has a bookkeeping ledger in heaven? Did you know that? Each of us has a, a separate book. I know that because it says in Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne in him who was, who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Books. Each one of us have a book, a ledger book an accounting book in heaven. And in preparation, preparation for this sermon, I requested and was granted access to the ledger book room of Grace EP Church. And so I stepped in there, and what it is is all these shelves, and there are these black-bound books on there. And so I went around, and I was very curious about certain people. I took one of yours down. And I opened it up. And it's a finely ruled, like college rule, 
okay? And the writing is very small. In fact, uh, don't worry, I couldn't read your book because the writing was so small. And I said, well, why is the writing so small? And then I was told, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives the names to all of them. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So I said, well, well, and, and it said, Jesus knows thoughts. I said, well, that makes sense. If he's putting in there sparrows and hairs of head and thoughts and intents of the heart, that would fill up a big book, wouldn't it? And then I looked around and I said, well, I don't see my book in here. They said, your book is in another room. And uh, that's where uh, church officers and leaders' books are kept. I said, well, why are they kept in a separate room? And he said, because the shelves have to be bigger because the books are much bigger and thicker because more is written in the book. I said, because we're greater sinners? He said, no, because teachers must give a greater account. And so more is written down. And then I started thinking, is this going to be on screen? Is everybody going to see this? And he said, yeah, the books are going to be opened. And everything will be open. Every thought and intent of the heart, every omission, every commission, every sin, every delinquency. I thought, oh, my God. Woe is me. And I said, well, can anything be done about this? And they said, yes, God has done something about this. You have a ledger in heaven, but there's another ledger. There's another bookkeeping going on, and it's called imputation. I said, well, that sounds like something that has merit and has promise. Tell me about it. And he said, well, he said, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I said, well, how does this work? And he said, well, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And so now how does this work? They said, well, it's a word in Greek is called legitsomai. I said, okay, it's a good place to start. New Testament's written in Greek, so we're right down to the nub of it. What does legitsomai mean? Legitsomai means to think, and by, by extension, consider, and by extension, count or reckon. You know, in the South, we would say, you think it's going to rain today? I reckon so. You know, 
You think that dog will hunt? I reckon so. You think that repair will hold? I reckon so. Because I think so. I'm counting that it will. And so what it's saying is that this is called imputation, that multislavic word. It sums everything up. It means that God counted, reckoned our sin like a divine bookkeeper in Christ's column, in his ledger book. He took that big, thick, narrow rule, small print book of every thought and intent of my heart and every act and every sin and failure, and he put it over there on Christ's side of the ledger. And then he took Christ's merit because Christ always kept the law and thought word and deed. He never broke the law and he never failed to fulfill it. He always did what his father told him. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. And so he pleased the father. And he paid for sin, that's why he was able to rise from the dead or he'd still be in the grave paying. And he took that righteousness and he put it on my side of the ledger. He counted, he imputed my sin and your sin, the sins of the whole world, to Christ. And then he imputed his righteousness to me. And that's why we gave you this morning in your bulletin. Uh, you did it responsively. You'll see on page three, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. Now, why does it say that? Well, because people look at this imputation and they say, well, that doesn't leave man anything to do. If it's purely a transaction, then that takes away our ability to contribute. And of course, we want to contribute so that we can have pride of place and be able to say, I did the right thing. My good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. And so different ways of looking at historically, and this is specifically and primarily true of the Roman Catholic Church, say that what God did was infuse righteousness into human beings, and then that gives them ability to live righteous lives. And then those righteous lives will earn them a place in heaven. Well, what if you fall short, as many of us do, by having enough righteousness to get to heaven. Well, then you invent something called purgatory where you work off the debt through pain and torture. Or you can go to a saint who had an, uh, an abundance, an overflow, more, uh, more righteousness than they needed. And by uh, buying or praying, you can take some of their righteousness and shorten the purgatory time. So you see, all of this 
was so that man might claim his part in the glory of God. Say, so yes, you infused me in righteousness, but I lived a righteous life and I've made up the difference. And the Protestant church came along and said, well, that's not what the scriptures say. In fact, that says that the death of Christ was not sufficient. It had to be added to. If you have to add something, then the original is not sufficient, adequate. And so the Protestantism rejected that. They said, no, the way it works, he pardons their sins by counting and accepting them as righteous. See the word accounting? He accounted them, imputed them as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And then on that basis, he accepted them as righteous even though they were not. It is not for anything wrought in them infusion, or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone that we are justified. It is not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other act of Christian obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the, the obedience and satisfaction of Christ to them. See where this comes from? Imputing the obedience and satisfaction. That is called active obedience and passive obedience. Jesus, for 33 years, actively obeyed every law of God. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He actively did that, and thereby he became a spotless, sinless lamb. And then he passively allowed himself to be put to death. So you see obedience and satisfaction, active obedience and passive obedience, who receive and rest on him and his righteousness by faith. Men do not have this faith in themselves. It is a gift of God. Now, it's okay to ask the question, can God do that? Can he just reach down and say, I'm going to take the sins of this group and put them on this person who has been, who it says here, he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And First Peter says, um, it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Well, how does God have the right to do this? The first reason is that he's the creator, and he can do with his creation whatever he wishes. Mic drop, period, end of discussion. Well, does he do what's just and right? It's interesting, since we are created in the image of God, every concept that we have of justice and rightness comes from God. And it's kind of interesting that we as fallen, rebellious human beings judge God because we don't think he's being righteous and just using the standards of just and right that he built into us when he created us that is a reflection of his character. See how weird that is? 
you know, when I was at, at Duke, there were a lot of rich kids there, and Duke was expensive. And so there were a lot of rebellious rich kids. And so they would use, you know, the things that their rich parents gave them to rebel against them. I'm going to take this credit card and not go home for Christmas. I'm just going to Europe for a vacation. I'll show them using their money. God created everything. But remember what Abraham said when he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Would not the judge of all the earth judge justly and do right? Not only is he creator, he is a just God. Everything he does is right. So first of all, he can do it because he's the creator. Second, he is just, and it must be just if he did it. But the third thing is Christ agreed to it. Christ agreed to it. In Hebrews 10, 5, when Christ came into the world, this is what he said, quote, I have a sermon on this called Christ's View of Christmas. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here am I. It is written about me in the scroll I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. Not only was it just, but Jesus agreed to do it. Now, why did he agree to do it? Well, we have a song that talked about when Jesus came in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. It says he emptied himself of all but love. He did it out of love. Certainly he did love for his people but let's not think that Jesus is some shallow brain dead loving person because Jesus did it for a reward what was his reward a people a people of his very own bought with his own blood Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He died and received an inheritance, and that is his people. In John 17, he says, Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Jesus agreed to it out of love for his people. But his gift, his reward was a people. Those people are called Christians. They're called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. So that he would have a people bought with his blood that valued him and loved him, and served him, and glorified him throughout eternity. That is his reward. So yes, God could impute our sin to him, because he's God, because he's just, and because Christ agreed to it. That's how it came about. That's his ledger of sin. 
That's his ledger of sin. Well, look at our ledger of righteousness. It was imputed to us. It's called, um, it's called alien righteousness. External righteousness. It comes to us not in the form of being made better, but in the form of being declared better. Let me illustrate it to you this way. We have three daughters. Two of them are married and have children. So let's take our older daughter, Elizabeth. She became pregnant, and her whole life changed. Her chemistry changed. Her body changed. Her emotions changed. Over the course of nine months, she grew this baby. I mean, her whole life changed. She became a mother. Now, guess what happened to Sandy as a result of that process? She became a grandmother. Did her chemistry change? Did her emotions change? Did anything about her change? No. Then how did she become a grandmother? Because of her relationship with her daughter. You see, we are the grandmother. Nothing in us has changed. But because of our relationship to Christ, we are changed into righteous. See how that works? In fact, in Scripture, it's talked about uh, coming clothed in the righteousness of God. I wrote this down. It says, um, Jesus spoke in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God. He came to his own, John 1, and his own rejected him. Then he sent more servants to say, I've told those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Some of them even seized his servants and mistreated and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready for my son, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, you're invited to the wedding, but you have to wear the wedding garment. Well, what is the wedding garment? What is the only garment that will allow us into the holy presence of God in his heaven and angels? It's the righteousness of Christ. That's the garment that we put on. 
when we invite people for membership and we have an interview because we want people who belong to Christ to belong to our church. And we ask them a question. This is, you know, tips and notes when you ask to join. If you were to get die and go to heaven and St. Peter's standing there by the gate and Peter says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And some say, well, I try my best. I hope my good will outweigh my bad. And if not, I'm willing to pay some purgatory time and get the ledger even. <laughs> if you're trying to get into heaven on your own righteousness, let me take you in this back room and show you all these ledger books. We're going to pull yours down. This is not going to work. Well, then what should the person say? I'll give you one thing that will open the door to you to membership in this church. One word. What is that word? Why should I let you into heaven, says Peter? That's a good word, but what's the title of the sermon? Imputation. Well, what do you mean by that? That my sins have been transferred to Jesus, and now his righteousness has been transferred to my side of the ledger, and I'm counting on his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness, to get into heaven. And you know what the elders will say? Bingo. (laughs) You see the difference? You see the difference? And we'd say, well, aren't aren't you ready to do your best to get into heaven? Sure I am, but I want to do a bit of good. Because our righteousness is our filthy rags. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed clothed yourselves with Christ. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Do you all mind getting downstairs early? Because Nick has taught me something. When you're through, quit. (laughs) But I'm not through yet. (laughs) I want you to think about it for a moment. What does it mean? Double imputation. It means, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, this burden that we carry on our lives of sin. And our conscience telling us that. And no hope of heaven. Without God and without hope in the world. God has taken this burden off our shoulders. And put it on the broad shoulders of Christ. I'm free of the burden. There's nothing I can do and there's nothing I have to do. I'm free. But it's not enough just to have sins forgiven because God is not just unstained. He is also glorious and holy and righteous. So it's not enough to be forgiven to come into God's presence. We must be clothed in righteousness. We must become holy as he is holy. So then I'm able to put on myself the robe of righteousness. And when my heart condemns me, And my conscience flares up. 
I'm able to say, yes, I know I'm a sinner, but my burden is on Christ. And his righteousness is on me. And that's what God thinks and counts and reckons and credits. So let me close with this. In the words of the preacher. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this big word describing a big event that in our ledger books, our sin has been counted to Christ's account because he was willing to accept it and that his righteousness has been credited to us and we're free of the burden. We're free to love and serve and know Christ because we're clothed in his righteousness. Thank you for that freedom. Thank you for imputation. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Amen.